Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Thank you very much for joining us on Second Captains at the Irish Times. If you listened late last week, you would have been presented with a number of options for your weekend sports viewing. There was quite a lot of good stuff on, and Murph presented three packages, silver, gold, and platinum. Depending mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. how little life you had or how much of the life you do have, you were willing to sacrifice to watching sport on TV over the weekend. Murph! Did Hello. you practice what you preached Hello, last Thursday? Uh, yes. You yes, went platinum? I, yeah, I did. I went platinum. Um, I was all in. Basically, I got so many tweets about it on Saturday morning that I was in, you know, I was kind of embarrassed into it. Uh, straight away, so many people got in touch on Saturday morning saying, are you getting up for football focus or what? <laughs> so I said, right, well, you know, no time like the present. Let's get up here. Let's let's do this thing. So it started at midday on Saturday with football now, focus. Yeah, there was there was... The pre-match of Chelsea Hull was actually more entertaining, so I was kind of flicking back. As and long as you were watching something, that's but then yeah. So from there, it just it. Did when did it end? It ended at. It was well after four in the morning, Sunday morning. Monday morning. No, that was Sunday morning. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And then I woke up on Sunday and I watched the Leinster game. Now I have to say I cheated a small bit. I didn't watch Newcastle Man City. I. I missed a good one there. Yeah, I went for a walk, which I think was an important thing for me to do at that stage of my life. Uh, but I did, I did then, I was back in plenty of time for Stoke Liverpool, followed by the two NFL playoffs, the Niners and the Panthers. Mm-hmm. And then it, the whole thing ended with the Denver Broncos beating the San Diego Chargers at around, I think around 20 to 1. Uh, so I rang, I rang my father on uh, Monday morning and I was... He asked me how I spent my weekend. <laughs> and I, I was quite proud of this. I was like, oh, Dad, oh. And then I ran into this wheel about how much sport yeah. I watch. And uh, my father is like, you know, he's into sport. He's very much into sport. I mean, he he would have been at an FBD league game if it was a little less he, wet. He bestowed that upon you, the love yeah. of sport. So he, he paused after I told him what I'd done. And he said, yeah, that's kind of pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, yeah, yeah. I suppose it is, you know, but I mean, I'm not going to be doing it every week. Judging by the traffic on Twitter, Murph, uh, there are quite a lot of pathetic people out there listening to yeah. the show because a, a lot of sport was watched. Ken, I must say, I succumbed to one of the great dangers of a weekend like that. Yeah. Fell asleep on the couch. <laughs> That's one way. To, one what way, time? Well, how, for how long did I fall asleep? At, at what time? Uh, qu- quite early on, it was the first half of Chelsea Hull. That was like the very one start. o'clock on Saturday I was up afternoon. late. I was actually working late the night before. 
And yeah, whatever. I'm really doubting your commitment to the Platinum Package if you can't make it through the first half of so the I've first game. It, well, yeah, I fell asleep for about four hours. It's more, more of a sleep than a nap. Mm. Um, yeah, so that kind of, that's one way to downgrade from Platinum to Gold. Yeah. How did you feel, by the way, after, your, after you did that? Murph. Uh, Monday morning. I've, I felt Ashamed? like I was, no, I was anxious to get into the office and talk to people. You didn't feel as though your life was happening to somebody else? No, no. Like you sort of, you, you become detached from yourself and no. are, are almost sitting there in the armchair looking across the room at yourself lying <laughs> on the couch watching the television. No, I think if there had been sort of, you know, a golf major on on the Monday, say, I know that doesn't usually happen, but I mean, if there was another major sporting event that I could, you know, give like six or seven hours attention to on the Monday, that I would then have had a, some sort of mental breakdown. See, I think it's wrong, you know, isn't it? It's like if you were just to eat candy floss, you know, three times a day. Yeah. For a week. Or McDonald's, as was done. On yeah, as, as was done in a apparently mendacious documentary. But, um, you know, it's... It, did, did you begin to to fall out of love with what, what you were seeing? I mean, love. What does love have to do with it? No, not really. You know, I, it was only 26 hours. You need to, it you was need just a 26 of, hours of sport. You can't appreciate the smooth unless you also have the rough, yeah. you know? You should really have gone out and done some work, preferably heavy industrial work, Yeah. in order to get you yourself see, Murph, into that. Murph's obsession and his passion also happens to be his work. I was listening to Tom Von Lawler talking about this, you know, the yeah. actor who plays Nidge yeah. in Love Hate. Uh, he's on the latest um, Irishman Abroad podcast oh, right. with Jared Regan. Really good interview. I'm only halfway through it at the moment, but as soon as I finish talking here, Ken, I'm going to go and listen to the rest of it. Yeah. And he made this precise point that he sometimes and quite often goes back to just watching an amazing movie or attending a, just a, one of the top plays, reading a book, whatever it might be, just to remind himself, just to keep the fire burning, remind himself that he actually loves what he does, mm. even though sometimes it feels like work. So that's what Murph has done. He's reconnecting mm. with his art yeah. by sitting on the couch over the weekend. I think there are a couple of Fools, you know, a, a couple of fools to the arrangement that I'm going to experiment with this weekend <laughs> because I'm going to do it again. But I, I'm not going to do it all that more often. To be I honest, I think this is wrong. January, no, no January, I don't think you should do it next weekend. I no, don't I'm, think a Tom Von Lawler advises that you spend all your time. No, no, it's fine. I'm going to go to the Leinster game on Friday. Mm. Totally different. <laughs> watching it on TV. Going to have to walk there as well, so that's good. And then on Saturday there is no late NFL games, so. It's actually only about, say, what, 18 hours of sport. Throw in the Friday game, maybe you're talking 21 hours. I mean, I can do that. I can do that standing on my head. Mm. Don't worry, Ken. It's not a problem. I have this under control. Well, you are going to go to Leinster Ospreys, Murph. That uh, rivalry is something that has developed into a rivalry over the last few years, mainly because Ospreys have gone to the RDS a couple of times and won big games, league deciders and so forth. We're going to talk a little bit to Shane Horgan and Jerry Thornley about that as part of our Heineken Cup conversation later on. And Vitaly Klitschko, is I don't know how you like the sound of a Taddy Klitschko, president of Ukraine, lads. It's got a nice ring to it for Very me. Very interesting. I think more sports people should lead their countries. Mm. <laughs> They're eminently qualified because they've done well at yeah. sport. I mean, I yeah, I mean, you sport uh, or uh, sports stars that get into politics. I mean, there's loads of examples of them. But you're talking about a country in the Ukraine, which is you know multiples the size of France. Uh, and at an unbelievably important stage in that country's history. So I, I mean, uh, to have 
a former world heavyweight champion. And he has boxer. declared that he is going to run for, for the presidency. For the presidency, that's why we're And he's a viable candidate. So, I mean, I think it's an unbelievably interesting We'll story. talk about that later. But Shane Horgan and Jerry Thornley, Irish Times rugby correspondent, are ready to talk. Kind and Cup. Jerry, thanks very much for popping in. Hold on. You, you, you've been writing a little bit about the permutations, just what exactly each mm-hmm. team, each Irish team needs to do to A, be in the quarterfinals and B, get a home quarterfinal if possible. Can you maybe just recap that before so we know what base we're working from here? Okay. Um, possibly easier to explain verbally than it is to write. Leinster <laughs> rugby need one point, basically. They just need one point at home to make sure they get into the quarterfinals. I reckon their chances of getting a home quarterfinal are very remote. They would need to win with a bonus point and need two of the other five current pool leaders to drop below them. This would probably entail Toulon losing in Glasgow and maybe Munster or Claremont not dipping their bread on Sunday. And of course, the added disadvantage for Leinster is that their results are in mm-hmm. on um, Friday night. So everybody else has them as a target. And um, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for them to get a home quarter final on the base of that. It, it, you know, if you look, look at that pool, it is the toughest pool of the six. If you just base it on current league standings, where Leinster are, where the Ospreys are, where Castor are, and where Northampton are, all of them are in the top three or four of their leagues in stark contrast to some of the other pools and it's just been a very tough one and so on top of everything else they have the lowest tries four of the six pool leaders as well yeah. so in the event that even they did catch up with one or two of those above them and were levelling points they'd struggle to overtake them Munster who have had a pretty much easier pool and yeah. everyone would agree yeah they've had a much easier pool and they got the advantage of kicking off on Sunday I still think they might miss out in the home quarter final because they're currently ranked fifth um, to get a home quarter final they probably need a bonus point win uh, and they probably need Toulon again to slip up in Glasgow that's the one that the others would be hoping for, that Glasgow can do them a favour. But if Toulon win there, then it's very difficult for Munster. The most catchable team are probably Claremont. Um, they, Munster would need to win with a bonus point. Um, but the problem is that Claremont kick off after Munster and mm. no effect they only have to match Munster because they're on the same try tally at the moment. Um, again, therefore, I think they might miss out. And for Ulster, it's quite simple. Um, if they draw or more likely if they win in effect. It's a shootout for a home quarter final um, if they go to, when they go to Welford Road and probably the game of the weekend. Yeah, Connacht technically have a chance. Technically have a chance, yeah. We mustn't forget that. We're all presuming that Saracens are, are going to beat them because Saracens will be very, very warm favourites even though Connacht very nearly beat Saracens the opening match the sports ground. But yeah, that's a shootout for second place and if Connacht were to win, they've a very good chance of getting in in third, fourth or fifth runners up the Amman Challenge Cup. They have a small chance of still making the Heineken Cup if they won that match. But again, their tri-tally is quite poor, only seven. Shane, is home advantage still the advantage that it always seems to have been in this competition? Uh, you were over in Cast watching Leinster put off a, a victory over there. First time they'd lost at home in Cast in, in around a year. Uh, Munster had a what turned out to be a relatively comfortable victory away from home against Gloucester. Is, is it possible that actually maybe it's not as big a deal as it used to be? I think it's still a, a very big deal, especially for the French sides. If you look at the way their league pans out as well, for example, um, Toulouse, I think, have three points from all their away games so far this season in the league. They're not used to going away and winning, so it's a big thing for them. It hasn't been as big a deal for the Irish sides. Um, they've been able to go away. Even we saw Northampton went to, to Leinster and got results, so it's not uh, a death uh, now if they have to go away. It, it, I think it's very, very difficult for the French sides. They don't have the mentality to going away to, to win. They're not used to it. They don't like it, and it gives them an excuse. Um, therefore it's more important to them but if you're any of the Irish provinces of course you'd want a, uh, a home uh, quarter final it would make things a lot easier for you 
Uh, it's not to say that you can't do it if you go away. It is just more difficult. There's familiarity now with the teams. Irish teams have all gone away now, including um, both Connacht and recently Ulster. They've gone away to the French sides. They've beaten them there. So they're, they, they're, they know they're capable of doing it. It's just very difficult. Shane, it's remarkable that the all four Irish provinces have won away in France this season. But would you accept that perhaps, OK, a home quarterfinal would be preferable and a away quarterfinal is not the end of the world. But if the Irish sides were to be drawn away, they would probably have a better chance going to England and playing Leicester or Saracens than they would any of the heavyweight trio of Toulon, Toulouse or Clermont. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And if it's looking up, I know you went to the permutations there and it's out the logarithmic tables to see, trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. But it looks as if uh, Leinster certainly are going to be away to one of the heavyweights. Um, possibly a Claremont, possibly a Toulon. And that's, that's a very difficult, very difficult uh, assignment. Uh, again, you know, they're, you, Leinster are more used to going over, Munster are more used to going over, and Ulster are more used to going over and winning against the French, against the English teams in England. It's still difficult to go over to France. And there's a greater onus in the knockout stages, I think, for the French teams. They're, they know they're in the competition. There's always that bit of a, um, almost a, a fallow period where they're still going through the, the um, group stages, where they're not fully committed or not, or they're not sure how committed they're going to be. But you know when it gets, gets down to the knockout stages and they have a home quarterfinal, you know any French team that's there is 100% uh, committed and the top 14 is put aside. At the moment, I think, depending on how results go, you know, at the early stages of the competition, um, the French sides are still have the top 14 always grating away in their head. And you saw that against Cast um, at the weekend. They made changes that they shouldn't have made against Lancer. They made decisions that they shouldn't have made against Lancer. And ultimately, that may have cost them um, the game. That one eye on the top 14 may have cost them the game. That's no longer an issue um, when we get to the knockout stages. Also, like um, Toulon, they're the holders. They've got real pedigree. Clermont have made it abundantly clear. You look at their season this season, even more than last they're resting up the week before the top 14. For all the criticisms of the Irish teams that they could, you know, cock a snoot at the, at the Rabo Pro 12 and rest up a week and peak for Heineken mm-hmm. Cup matches, Claremont have been doing this for two years and are doing it even more this season. They desperately want the Heineken Cup. And to lose, we have their pedigree. And also, the home quarter finals, Toulon, uh, Murad Boulajal has already stated they are not moving it from to the Felix Mayol and Claremont are not going to move theirs from... I mean, why would they when you've won 72 matches in a row, whatever it is? Yeah. So it, it, you're going right. Not, it won't be even semi-neutral venues. Like Leinster won't beat Claremont, but it was in a Bordeaux semi-final. And that does make a bit of a difference. It makes a huge yeah. difference. Yeah. Yeah. Leinster have to take care of the Ospreys first um, on Friday night, Jerry, And this is, uh, it's, it's funny because you can see where the Leinster-Munster rivalry came from. Not this one probably we didn't see coming quite as much. Leinster and Ospreys have built up something over the last few years. It's funny in that we know professional rugby is a relatively new sport, so there are some teams that mightn't have been rivals five years ago, but be, just because of a quirk of of the fixture list and a couple of big results, maybe and also international allegiances, they do become that way. Yeah, I mean when they're drawn against each other in Europe, and Ospreys have been drawn against Munster or Leinster quite a lot in the latter years. That means you're meeting four times a season, plus, as you say, maybe a Six Nations fixture when two cores are running into each other as well. It builds up a lot of enmity. I would venture that there is more, or there had been more bad blood between the Ospreys and Munster. I don't think there's so much bad blood between Leinster and the Ospreys. What just unnerves Leinster so much is that the Ospreys have come over and won a couple of Grand League finals in the RDS and just seem to have a bit of an Indian sign over Leinster. Now, I was at the first game in the Liberty Stadium 
and it was the complete contrast to last mm. Sunday. It was a really good sleeved rolls up, gritty, determined, focused away win. It was kind of like a one nil away win, whereas last Sunday in Cash was more like a four three away win. And uh, they, I think maybe they've got the Ospreys number and it does help that the Ospreys only have a five day turnaround as well and that they are out of contention. Does it play into your mind if you're involved in a game like that Shane do you start looking at a, a certain team because they've beaten you particularly in your own patch as a side that you can get even more revved up for? Well I think the first, I don't think they, they need to get revved up specifically based on the team that they're playing against this week um, I think it's, it's certainly the result is going to be the main driving factor and um, their performance level to uh, achieve that result. That's what's going to be the main factor. Also, as well, I think the shine has gone off the Ospreys a little bit. Um, they're still competing in the Rabo, but they were really demolished badly at home in that first round of um, the Ohio Cup by Leinster. It was it was a really phenomenal performance. It was very very clinical, and they never they never looked to be in the game at all. And uh, uh, I think what's happened, they ha- there, was a, there was an Indian sign over, over Leinster. It was almost on a couple of occasions, Ospreys had turned up and it was as if they hadn't read the Leinster script. Mm-hmm. They were going to win titles. Or, and I was involved in a couple of them that, you know, everything had gone well that season. And we were just going to, you know, roller coast over um, Ospreys, make sure to do a job against them. And, um, you know, we were a better side, better players, and we were very well prepared. And, and we take the win. And it didn't turn out like that. And a lot of that was based on, you know, the, the experience that they had against Leinster but also the experience that they had against Ireland there was that idea for a lot of years that you know they weren't as good as Leinster and even Wales didn't have the, they were sort of fragile um, and their confidence levels were very fragile that sort of almost was blown out of the water in the in the in the noughties by the two Grand Slam victories and a lot of those players played for the Ospreys they subsequently went on to beat Leinster in a couple of high profile games and there was no fear factor there whatsoever and you know Leinster Leinster and Munster, it's happened to them as well for a lot of years. They beat teams walking out on the field. It was like, the, you know, the, the New York Yankees. There were, teams were beaten as soon as they saw the stripes. It was the same thing with Munster. The teams saw the red and now at Leinster, teams see the blue and they're beaten already. And Ospreys never bought into that because they had beaten the Irish team consistently and uh, they had beaten the, both those t- sides consistently as well and were allowed to compete. A lot of those players are now gone. So I don't think that the, the same... Um, the same exists with this group of players. Uh, Shane, as a matter of interest, are there any other teams you can think of who you played against who you would have felt became rivals? Obviously, Munster would be a a clear one, but just for no other reason than you had a a couple of defeats or a couple of tough matches against them. Well, I think that there's those uh, games against Claremont. Claremont, I think there's a really, there's there's a great rivalry has built up now between Leinster and and Claremont and that's going back a lot of years and it's familiarity, it's quality of performance, it's respect from, uh, of their players um, towards yours and and vice versa Uh, and you know that builds up over. It doesn't happen over, of course, a one a big one-off game. Um, and you're right. Those the historical um, rivalries that have built up. You know the previous uh, hundred years. You know it's only really Munster exists to a lesser de- degree. Ulster. The new rivalries are the ones that are based up, uh, are based around the formation of the the Rabo and the formation of, of the Heineken Cup. And they're the ones that you play most often in the closest games for uh, the most reward and consistently over the last number of years that's been Claremont it, you know it didn't go well for Leinster last year um, being beaten at home and away um, but in years gone by it was very even wins here and there for each and, and but probably Leinster with slightly the upper hand 
you know, we could see another uh, recreation of that rivalry again this uh, this year and as soon as quarterfinal time. We'd probably like to see that. I think. Well, I don't know if, from a Leinster point of view if Leinster fans want an away quarterfinal against Claremont, but from a rugby point of view, those are great matches, I think, Jerry, aren't they? Yeah, there's hardly... But it's a good rivalry. Just never, because the, I think the key the brand, thing is the, the, the brand quality. of rugby. Yeah, yeah. The brand of rugby, because they both play a really positive brand of rugby. Claremont are one of the few teams in France you'd actually watch 80 minutes of without falling asleep. Um, and Leinster, we know the brand of rugby they play. I don't know if they're... Their attacking brand of rugby has consistently scaled the heights this year. You think of that Northampton game away from home in Franklin's Gardens. That they've chronically missed Sean O'Brien. And until he came on, Keane Healy, the difference, a straight carrying dynamic carrier made in Castro last Sunday was quite extraordinary. Until then, a lot of their attack play had been quite lateral. Um, and they'd survived by dint of two wonderful pieces of opportunism by um, Jimmy Gopperth, mm. helped as it was by some good sniping by Redden. Good lines by Luke Fitzgerald, but not quite as potent. Um, but they, yeah, they've been great. They've been great, great matches between the two of them, and that there's never been a dull one actually. Um, and it's been phenomenal the way Leinster have competed against Claremont. You could argue that Claremont on their day are a better team than France, and therefore for Leinster to go and win a semi-final in Bordeaux, and I think deservedly so, even though people remember the Wesley Fofana nearly getting over the line and the tackle by Darcy, whoever it was. I still think Leinster were the better team in that day and to go to Bordeaux and say that is quite a phenomenal achievement. Leicester, Ulster could probably be considered a, a modern rivalry. I'd imagine given that Leicester were hammered at Ulster a couple of years ago, that's probably enough at a club like that to consider Ulster a team that they want to beat. Obviously, Munster, or sorry, Ulster should say won the home game earlier on this year. But um, is, is what do you make of this game and of Ulster's chances going away to Leicester? Um, I think they've got a real good chance, actually. I think... Their performance last Friday was a bit worrying. Uh, it almost made it look as if Munster's first half efforts in Ravenhill flattered Ulster a little bit. But I'm, I was at the first game between Leicester and Ulster and had a real sense of a heavyweight Anglo-Irish Heineken Cup fixture. And Ulster very nearly put Leicester to the sword. I think they had two disallowed tries that night, but for which they would have pulled clear. And we might be looking at a different um, um, scenario mm this Saturday whereby maybe a bonus point defeat would have sufficed for Ulster and they got, Leicester got a little bit off the hook and you always felt that that would come back uh, to haunt Ulster a little bit and so it's come to pass they're going to have to win six matches to get a home quarter final but I think I think they've got more strike power I think they've got more potency I think once they're fully loaded they're a top quality team but they need to be fully loaded in other words they need to have John Afoa there um, and you'd wonder if they're going to have a, as good a chance after this season given the restrictions on them replacing a world-class tight head. They don't exactly fall off trees. Uh, Johan Muller might be moving on. We know Tom Court's moving on. So it's an opportunity not for them, and they desperately will not want to travel again the third year in a row. I mean, I know they won in, in Thoman Park two years ago. It cost them last season. I don't think this is a vintage Leicester team at all. Um, it's showing in their domestic form. They're outside the current top four. They were a little lucky to win in Montpellier and it was an understrength Montpellier team. Ulster's win in Montpellier was far the better and I do think that you know, they were the better team in the first game. And I think they're capable of playing brighter rugby um, in broken play from counter-attacks and so forth. And I also think they've got the uh, physical power up front to cope with Leicester. I could be wrong, but I'd, I'd give them a chance. Shane, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, no, I fancy I fancy Ulster in that game. Do you? Um, yeah, there's a lot of, yeah. There's a lot of talk about how much uh, Leicester needed, and yeah, maybe they do. But uh, I think Ulster are very focused on the prize this year. I think they recognise that there's um, you know there's a huge difference um, between having to go away, uh, as we said, and uh, and having a game at home uh, with their own fans. That's where they feel more comfortable with. I you know I'd be very confident depending on who they get, but almost. 
uh, anyone outside of the Irish teams, um, if they get a home, if they get a home uh, quarter, that they'd be very likely to go through uh, to a semi. And if you look at the balance of their side, I, I just think it's it's very good the way they play. Um, they they attack um, they attack the ball very flat when they actually when they're going forward. I know there's issues with, with Paddy Jackson when they're when they when they're not on the front foot, but um, the spine of their team is very strong. They've got back uh, best in a number two, and you're right. Jerry, I don't. I, there's a feeling this year around. I just get a sense that I don't. I, Ulster won't be as good next year. Um, yes, they've kept Pinar and they've done very well to keep him. But at what cost? Um, losing a foul, losing court. For me, that would be that signifies real, real problems. Um, to lose your two front line props in in the first uh, in one year without any ready main replacements, and they really don't. There's a bit of a drop off for them. I think less so than in Munster and Leinster. Um, so I think they're very focused on this year and maybe recognising that they're coming to an end of a cycle here. And if you don't win in that cycle, um, hmm. you don't know how long it's going to take before you're in a situation where you can compete again. Shane Munster clearly have something going again and a bit of momentum and spirit and those things. So I don't want to take away from them too much, but I was struck by the even Gloucester's reaction to that defeat. They seemed very proud of the fact that they had put in some sort of an effort against Munster and they're happy to take what was quite a heavy beating at home. Is there a danger in getting a bit carried away with what Munster have done in this pool so far, given that all they have to do is, well, they're already, they're already through and they have a home game against Edinburgh, but really we don't know that much more about them than we would have known a couple of months ago. It doesn't matter if we get carried away or not. We're allowed to do it, but it's it's just as, as long as they don't. And I don't think they will. I think they'll recognise uh, what they've done. Listen, it's always it's it always looks easy to beat teams when you beat them easy, and um, that's what they've done. And and at the start of the competition, you might have said, yeah, there's a few more uh, banana skins here than there than there actually has been. You know, they've they've dealt with it. Aside from the first weekend, they've dealt with it very well. My one concern would be their performances almost to a T and uh, apart from that one in Edinburgh have been based on a lot of emotion as well they've got emotionally charged for these now you know, maybe you can't fight the two fronts of both the, the Rabo and Heineken Cup on performing um, on emotion week in, week out. But you can win Heineken Cups doing it because you only have games dotted in here and there and, and there's breaks between them. So, you know, they don't need to have been challenged. They don't need to have had their toughest games in the group game, in the group stages, to be able to perform very well in the um, quarters and the semis and the final. You know, that's not an issue. They don't need to. They you know, There's enough experience in that side that those, even the players that they that have have limited experience have experience of big games from the last couple of years. So I think they're in a very good position. Um, I you know again I expect them to win again uh, this weekend and and you know maybe just miss out. It looks like they're going to be missing out on a home um, quarter. But again, depending on who they get, you know you certainly wouldn't back against Munster. You know producing a one-off, really effective, uh, brutal performance that isn't isn't based on sort of, I think, the game plan that, Kenny, uh, that uh, Penny has tried to implement, but one that's based on a, a very direct, very physical, uh, very passionate and emotionally charged monster performance. And when they get those things right, um, they generally win games. Um, there's always a risk that if you're a little bit off on the emotional side of things that, and, and the rest of your game isn't accurate enough, then uh, you, you lose. But... You know, so far this season, with that, aside from one time in the big matches, uh, they've been able to turn it on. Yeah, it's a good it's, point. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You know, they they've just lost Ron Nogara on top of a whole load of other 
players some had to retire a little bit prematurely would otherwise but might still be there the likes of Leamy Flannery quite a golden generation of theirs have moved on they've been trying a brand new style of rugby in effect they probably get more criticism than any other Irish province and yet they're winning the rab on their top of their Heineken Why do they get world. more criticism do you think? I think because they do your head in when you're watching them at times because they just the skill levels and precision for the kind of game they're trying to play often let them down and you know Sometimes there's been games, I think it was the Perpignan game at home, I think five times, six times, they either threw the ball or ran over the touchline. And, it, you know, it just does your head in. Watch. Yet there's something really endearing about them and the way they hang tough. That try away to Perpignan, obviously, in the, in the overtime was just sensational. Um, and I agree with Shane. I think as, like, the key is, is as long as Paul O'Connell stays fit and healthy, then they have a chance. Take him out of the mix. But don't forget, they've got Tommy O'Donnell coming back now. And I... I would really like to see him in the Irish number seven jersey. I'm a fan. I think he's got he'll add to the ball carrying a bit more than the other number sevens around, which in the in the chronically bad absence of Sean O'Brien is going to be needed. You've got Conor Murray coming back. You've got Simon Zebo coming back. You've got that South African winning sign who got two goal. He got two tries last weekend for the BNI Cup team. You've got you know BJ Bolt is still there. I think they've been. I, I agree with Shane. I also think there's been a better mix to their game this season, as, as Shane has alluded. Been, there has been more direct rugby along with the wide, wide game. All right, well, I'd normally wrap up then by asking for predictions about what's going to happen this weekend, but it might be more interesting to ask which of the Irish provinces is the most likely is most likely to win the Heineken Cup this season? Me or him? Okay, you, I'll oh, go. Jerry, you're in front of me, so... Um, well, just strictly because of the way the draw has panned out and they've got a chance of securing a home... The best chance of securing a home quarter-final you'd have to say Ulster have the best chance as things stand. Shane? I think it's tighter this year than, than ever. I really do. And probably tie, the tightest and the uh, tightest since um, the, the game uh, that, that we had the all-Irish semi-final in 09. Um, it's a really difficult one. I think Leinster are going to struggle badly because um, they're, going to have to, they're going to have to go away to the side of France. If they win down there, then they'd be favourites. Uh, but as things stand um, going into um, quarterfinals or the last, the last weekend before the quarterfinals likely to go away, you've got to think Ulster have a hell of a chance. Um, <laughs> I couldn't write off Munster at all. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think Connor have a chance too? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, if results found out well for Connor, no, I really, you know, I'd find it very difficult. Um, I, I, I think, uh, I think Ulster, I think Ulster can be very strong this year. But going against the French pack, no, I think probably ultimately, I think probably only Leinster and Munster could uh, beat those French sides, the big French sides, on the biggest day. Which of those two? We're down to two now. So, which of those two is the most likely winner, Shane? Uh, listen, I'm going to stick with. I'm going to go with Leinster because there's a surprise. I, think, I know a surprise, surprise. I think just because they have the capacity um, to play a different style against the big French teams and not go toe to toe with them, Munster would would have to go toe to toe in the physicality stakes against the biggest of the French sides and I'm thinking about Toulon and uh, Toulouse and Clermont and I don't think that they're quite good enough to do that I don't think Leinster are qu- good enough to do, go against them in the physical, physicality stakes but I think that they have more strings to their bow and that's where they go after and that's where they'd have an opportunity to beat them I actually don't think I don't think they'll, they'll win no but uh, I think uh, of the three that could win I think Leinster possibly have the best chance We got there in the end Shane, brilliant Jerry, thanks so much Cheers to celebrate the launch of the new Mazda 3, we're inviting you to join Jerry Thornley, Liam Toland, and a panel of rugby experts as they discuss the upcoming RBS Six Nations. For your chance to attend this once-off Irish Times Six Nations event in association with Mazda 3, go to irishtimes.com. The all-new Mazda 3, proving everyone wrong. All right, that's, that's good manners. <laughs> 
of the players you played with are still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. I've seen none of their business, you know, what I was going to do. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame, you know, some sort of animal, you know what I mean? I mean, you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like, what a Teresa. You know, he's, um, I don't know, and we want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days. The hotel's been lovely. Food's been excellent. Training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. Just to go back, Murph, to the rivalry theme there. Mm. That I was uh, trying to get to in that conversation. US Murph on Thursday. We're going to be talking to look ahead to the divisional finals. Essentially the semi-finals. The two teams who win at the weekend are going to be playing each other in the Super Bowl. So big time in NFL and a couple of keen rivalries in those games. Yeah, unbelievably uh, huge rivalries. There's uh, Tom Brady against Peyton Manning, the best two quarterbacks of the last 15 years, perhaps two of the top five quarterbacks of all time, meet for the 15th time ever. Uh, This is probably uh, the last time it's going to happen at this stage. There's a doubt that Peyton Manning will be back next year. It's an absolutely huge game. That's the curtain raiser to the Seattle Seahawks, the best team in the NFL against uh, US Murph's own uh, San Francisco 49ers. And those two teams, own, they just don't, they they just straight do up don't along. like each other. They just really don't like each other. Well, yeah. Uh, so I, I, uh, two brilliant, brilliant games and uh, two huge rivalries. Of course, if you ask me for a sports rivalry, the first two names that pop into my head, I'm sure it's the same for you as well. Mm-hmm. Lendl, oh. Matt Philander. I mean, that's, Lendl Philander, that's yeah. the big one for me, always has been. <laughs> I mean, I think that's really... You know, Fire and ice, Murph. Was for ice and ice. Ice and ice, I think, yeah. <laughs> Those kind of things. Right, later today. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What have you known? I'd like to stay alive. I'd like to have a good idea. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. Well, we're obviously going to talk quite a lot about the Ballon d'Or, Owen, because I watched quite a lot of this show yesterday, got bored of it, went home. And when I got home, it was still on. So I was able to watch the end of it as well. And I think there's quite a lot to say about it, so let's do that in a little while. We're also going to talk about Arsenal. We've got Andrew Mangan of Arsenal coming in, because the last time he was in was... Um, After the first game of the season, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, to talk about what a disaster Arsenal are. Andrew, tell us how terrible your club is and how yeah. Wenger should be sacked and all these things. Now we're going to have to be a bit sheepish and bring him in to explain so, the genius of Arsene Wenger. Everything has turned around. And we're going to talk a little bit also about Clarence Seydorf, the very first Dutch manager in the history of Serie A. Really? Which I find... Incredible. It's really. kind of surprising, given the background at AC Milan, first of all, of you know them, base, them being propelled to glory by yeah. the, the Dutch, Dutch players. But also, the Dutch know more than everyone else about football, even though they have never won the biggest tournament. They've spread football around the world. They've they've spread the gospel of, of attacking they're like, football. Um, yeah, it's, it's like they invented capitalism. They're like the know. Velvet Underground, you know? Um, it's not. They're not the biggest band in the world. But they are but the they most influential. They influence everyone that heard them. Set up their own band. That's what they say about the Belgian <laughs> Everywhere except this um, this uh, insular outpost of Italian football, which has remained deaf to the Dutch football gospel. We're going to go over to Kiev in a moment, Ken, to talk uh, about Vitaly Klitschko. We referenced it at the start. He's, and he announced late last year that he was going to run for the presidency 
he has been involved in politics there for quite a while, even while still boxing. Uh, as Murph mentioned, though, this is it, this is a pretty volatile political situation he would be landing himself in the middle of were he to become the leader of Ukraine at this yeah. point of its history. Would he be the leader, though, or would he just He'd be, be president. A, a puppet? I mean, who's holding the strings on Vitaly Klitschko? You know, if he's a guy who... I, I, I'm not aware of his, his ideas. He's obviously very famous. Um... But what's he involved in this for? I don't really understand. He just mm. he just wants to become more famous, more powerful. But the problem is that, you know, it's all very well using your uh, reputation, your status to secure uh, a big position like that. But you are at some point going to have to come up with some ideas for policies. And if he doesn't have them himself, then someone is going to be feeding them to him. And I, I wonder who those people are. Well, let's talk to Alex Tkach, who's editor-in-chief of Tribuna.com in Kiev. Alex, thanks for talking to us about this. We all know Vitaly Klitschko as one of the world's most famous sports people and we do know that he's been dabbling in politics over the years, but there's obviously more to it than just dabbling. He is going to run for the presidency. Is he being now taken seriously uh, politically in Ukraine? Mm, I'd say more yes than no, but that that would need a clarification. Because uh, the thing is, he's taken seriously as uh, uh, as a guy who wants to run, as a guy who could make a serious contender and competitor to the current president. But uh, th- there's a problem about Klitschko, about being uh, more, that, more a figure that uh, could unite ed- anyone who's not content with the uh, with cu- current government and current president um, more than uh, those who really sympathize him and want him him definitely be the president. Okay, so yeah, the, the, the fact that he has quite a lot of popularity at the moment is based more on the uh, dissatisfaction with the current government, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Vitaly would be a brilliant president. Yeah, yeah, because no one, no, no one really knows what, what kind of a president who, uh, he would, could be because he, he's not a, um, not a well-versed politician. He doesn't speak very good, but he, he's... Uh, uh, his position is that he's against all the bad things. So, like, let's support him. That, that, that's his current program, I'd say. I'm right in saying that he spoke many times at the rallies, at the protests late last year in Kiev. Yeah, sure. He and was what, one of the what, three, three opposition leaders. What kind of message was he trying to send? What, what was he saying in those at those rallies? Hmm... <laughs> I I wouldn't like um, what all of them said from the at those rallies was uh, mm, general things, n- nothing uh, n- nothing that would uh, specify any program. Which is why uh, even the protesters, even all the people uh, here in Ukraine who support um, the the protests against uh, the government. Uh, which is why they are kind of um, disappointed with with all these three leaders, including Klitschko. Uh, there's nothing specific in their programs. Like, like let's let's out the current government. Let's they're corrupt. They're bad. Which is things that local people, Ukrainians here, already know. So it's when you say he talks about the bad things. That's the corruption, as you say. Uh, he also. Uh, is very much pro-European, I assume. His party well, wants to be more, because Ukraine is in an interesting 
situation that I guess is a power struggle at the moment between the EU maybe and Russia on the other side, both of whom want some sort of control. Has Klitschko and his party been quite clear in their views regarding Ukraine's place in Europe? Yeah, sure. All of them were, all of these rallies are pro-European. So when you come out on the, on stage, you, 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 the, the you message you, you can deliver is pro-European. And he's been clearly pro-European. His background is kind of helping him. He's ling- uh, lived long enough in Germany and still popular there. Is that that there's a guy uh, who, who who tries and has has the chances to link his image and Ukraine Ukraine's image to Europe. Alex, uh, as you mentioned, he's you know he's got an international profile. You know he's very big in Germany. He's he's a he's a well known person around the world. He's a very rich man. He could have a nice life. Why does he want to be president of Ukraine? Mm, he's ambitious. <laughs> some some other ambitious except sports. You can be. In boxing forever and uh, the world of boxing after you finish your career it maybe it's not what he thinks is enough for him to be you know, a promoter he has his own promotion uh, promoting company with his brother vladimir but it's not enough for him so ambition is all there is i mean he doesn't does he have a vision does he have an idea of what kind of country he wants ukraine to be or is it just all about the greater glory of vitali klitschko um, unfortunately, I think the the, the former is uh, more um, probable because um, not not because Klitschko is a bad guy, not because he's like um, uh, he doesn't say what he believes in, but the, he he's not a politician in terms of like um, what he has a big program, he has an, his own uh, vision. He's a figure. He's a very a popular figure for Ukrainians, like a national idol. So it's very, very convenient to use him as a pol- political leader for people who stand behind him. He's not not a real, real politician. He's a figure. I did want to ask you about that because uh, you say that he is uh, seen as a national icon, as a sort of an idol. He became, as you say, an international personality almost and uh, not that he ever lost his roots or anything like that but he became so well known worldwide at a time when there weren't really very many great heavyweight boxers did he retain the, the his um his popularity in all that time in Ukraine was he still very much seen as as one of uh, as one of the Ukrainians yeah sure he's uh, he's definitely a national icon he's he's made boxing in Ukraine something more than uh, there are, you know, here in Ukraine, sport the, the dominant sports is football or soccer, <laughs> maybe a call in Ireland. But uh, and the the second one is boxing, or more specifically, the Klitschkos. Like they they made boxing uh, and themselves something very popular in Ukraine in terms of sports, in terms of even those who don't don't aren't really uh, fond of uh, any sports. They, they they know about them, and so they they've been hugely popular. They they still are. If he is a figurehead, as you say, Alex, who are the people behind him? Is there a group of more savvy political people actually pushing him out front? Sure, that's it. The the, the only question is um, who those people are. Now, there are different like. Hypothesis on that, so including what, including a very credible one that those people <clears throat> can be a, a faction of uh, 
the current party, which are kind of which is kind of splitting from inside, so they they have their own stake on on him. Just lastly, Alex, after everything you've told us over the last little while, can I ask you how likely is it that Vitaly will be the next president of Ukraine? Like 50-50. 50-50, it's uh, decent enough odds. Listen, Alex, thanks so much for talking to us. We'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, 50-50 is uh, it's a decent shout. Yeah. 50-50%. Yeah. And uh, interesting to hear Alex talking about that, uh, that idea that all we know is what he's not for uh, and even even notwithstanding all that, notwithstanding the fact that there is a lot that we don't know about Vitaly Klitschko's policies, that he would still be a fifty fifty shout yeah. as we say well, here today. Come on, he would be. Let's be let's be blunt about it. He would be the most macho world leader. That's what it's all about. I look forward to the picture of him uh, photographed next to uh, Vladimir Putin. Oh, suddenly he comes across as a little bit girly. Well, a, God, a, a, a dainty so little man, puny Putin. That's what they'd be calling him. <laughs> yeah. He, they'd call him up. I mean, because he is actually very short. I mean, I think he's 5'5". Five five, you know, that, that yeah, but look at the broad shoulders. You've seen him topless. You've seen those photographs. I don't yeah, think very, there's very any, small, though. You know? I don't think there's any doubt that there would either be a large hole or a large stand yeah. somewhere in on that uh, that dais that, uh, <laughs> that uh, Klitschko and Putin yeah, were to meet. I don't, I don't think, think that, that yeah, happen. I don't think there's going to be a 13-inch differential in height because they they uh the i mean he, he used to have his his buddy uh medvedev the um the former president who kind of kept the seat warm for putin for a mm. while because constitutionally he couldn't just be president for life so he had to kind of i got a step to back it. change the constitution um, i'll see in a few minutes and medvedev <laughs> I, I think the name actually means bear in 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 russian medved is bear it means well it actually means honey eater but so he kind of looked like he, he probably had eaten quite a lot of honey. honey yeah. um, he was a very, very small man as well. I mean, still is. Uh, <laughs> and, and I remember when he was announced as president, himself and Putin uh, walked together across Red Square mm. and Medvedev was wearing this little leather jacket and the pair of them were walking across Red, Red Square, which has never looked so mighty and imposing <laughs> as it did, uh, put into perspective by those two tiny little men <laughs> walking across the apparently giant cobblestones <laughs> of, of the uh, of the Russian Republic's uh, greatest plaza. Thanks so much for listening to us. We do really appreciate it. If you want to get in contact, email secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. You can follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains. We're on Facebook there, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. We will have our football show out a little bit later on for you today. Lots of good stuff in there, particularly if you're an Arsenal fan, but even if you're not, there was so much, as you can, you only touched on it there, Ken, but I've I think we've all got plenty to say about the Ballon d'Or award and the glitzy ceremony yeah. extravaganza that surrounded it. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Thank Ken. you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. What's going on, is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.